chapter 11. I appreciate you uh, keeping up with the reading, <laughs> whether or not it coincides exactly with um, our discussion in class and uh, when we come together. Um, stay on track with the reading, and who knows, maybe one day something amazing will happen. All right. Now, you already know what I'm going to say. That makes my job a lot easier. In terms of what we're seeing in Jeremiah, two of the key ideas are that the people of God, well, God had been reaching out to them rising early, sending the prophets, calling out to them. It was with the same message repeatedly. But God's words through Jeremiah are that they have not listened to me. And it's gotten to the point, as you know, that they don't even know who God is. What we'll see very plainly from our reading and uh, some small discussion tonight is that they will come to know who God is. And that is plainly and explicitly part of his uh, plan uh, in what he has to say through the mouth of Jeremiah. What we just finished neatly was Jeremiah's what we call 7 through 10, where Jeremiah addressed the people by God's instruction at the uh, temple. And what was surprising about that was that all of this idol worship was coming right into the very, what God would call his very house and polluting that. And yet they thought that by their religious acts that God would hear them and show favor to them. And, and this is, God had to make it very plain to them that this was not the case, that they had broken his covenant and that they thought they were coming near to him to worship. They were very far from him and far from, he is far from their minds as we'll see in chapter 12. So that was uh, Jeremiah 7 through 10 at the temple. And God sends Jeremiah again, with, but with a different focus, starting in chapter 11. So what we see here is that Jeremiah sent to all the cities of Judah in verse 6. Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the, and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. It's going to be a very plain message. It's going to be an urgent message is what we'll find. Um, but at the end of chapter 11, what we'll see is, it's an unwelcome message, and this is not really surprising because anytime people speak truth for God, it's encountered by resistance, right? In every case. But with such an important message, it's, it's, urgent, or it's important for everybody to hear it. And so he's, he's been able to address many, sh surely many people, by being standing in front of the temple where people would come and, uh, and come to assemble. Um, but now he, he's going to have to make efforts to go in among the people, person to person, mouth to mouth, walk up and speak into their ears and try to get, um, get, get in contact with those who will hear his message. Like Jeremiah, by the way, we are stewards or messengers of an urgent and important message. Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 13, will say, The times of ignorance God overlooks, but now commands all, that all men everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a time when he's going to judge the world. It's urgent. I think that's part of what uh, Paul was saying. 
And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, I think we pointed this out before. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. See, what motivates us is we know what it is to fear God and what it is to be out of a covenant relationship with God. And so on that basis, we're making all our efforts to reach people um, and cause them to hear him. So it's an urgent message. Verse 4 reiterates, let's see if we're, yeah. Okay. Verse 4 reiterates a timeless biblical uh, concept, a couple of them, in fact. And so, in verse 4, listen to my voice, God says, and do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And in this, he says in verse 5, in order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land. So two things. All along, God has been looking for a people for himself, a special people. Um, this it points to a relationship he would like to have with them. And secondly, that he intends to bring uh, any faithful people into a good land. And this is much like what we had read. Um, those of us who were part of the Sunday morning Bible study from the book of Hebrews, do you remember? Uh, this would have been Hebrews, uh, was it chapter 4? Um, and so he, he intends to bring them into a land of rest. And there's a land of rest laid ahead for the people of God. But as Mr. Phil pointed out, there was some of that being shared with God. There's some of that being shared with us, God's people, uh, right now. Listen to the words of Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to a land. Now, God attempted this among the people of Israel. In fact, he's, he's intended to dwell among his people all along even back at the time of the garden. But he found no faithfulness among Israel and Judah, and that's part of what we read here in uh, Jeremiah chapter 11. And he says it's even like a conspiracy. <laughs> it's like everybody's turned away, and everybody's in on it, and nobody wants to be part of this covenant and uh, be faithful uh, to, to follow the Lord, to walk according to the covenant. Um, however... He's going to start pointing ahead to a time where God will have faithful people. Okay, now we haven't read it yet. You have on your own at, a, at various times probably. But what chapter in Jeremiah can we say? What chapter? There's more than one really, but especially one. What chapter in Jeremiah points ahead to a time where God will have a people for himself? What is it? Yeah, Jeremiah 31. And so... And that, that will be a very prominent, that will feature prominently in that. So he found no faithfulness among Israel and Judah, but his covenant people under his new covenant are going to be exactly what he's uh, looking for and what he desires. Verse 15 recalls two of the different threads that we've been seeing throughout Jeremiah's message. 
In the first half of that verse, it, it's recalled by two, two questions that God asks. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Remember back to chapter 3. She's running around with all these other lovers, but she comes home and she's acting like her husband should still love her. And can, can this be the case? Could, could God even regard her with any favor? And, and so there's uh, a plain answer to that. And then in the second half of verse 15, this will be uh, kind of a repetition or a continuation of his message at the temple, especially in chapter 7, where he says, Can the sacrificial flesh take away from you your disaster so you can rejoice? So if you keep coming here and bringing your sacrifices, bringing your offerings, just like I asked, except that's not really what I was asking for. I wanted your hearts. I wanted your obedience. I wanted your love. But we can keep bringing these sacrifices in a kind of this kind of mock worship, and we're still coming to the house of the Lord. Can they do this and expect God's favor? It's the same thing we've been saying along. And so, a uh, continuation of those threads there in verse 15. Make your comments if you need to as we uh, go through this. In uh, verse 16 and 17... Um, the beautiful olive tree that God had planted it became completely worthless. And before I go to Bruce, what happens in the, okay, in the words of Jeremiah chapter 1, what happens to worthless plants? Uprooted, right? Plucked up because they're out of here. They're not serving any purpose. Jesus will say, why does it use up the ground? And that's, that's what you see in verses 16 and 17. But Bruce... Before we get too far, I wanted to mention a third uh, important thing in uh, verses 4 and 6, and that is uh, the call of the gospel. Hear and do. Obey and do. Mm -hmm. It's very important that the Bible, the gospel call does not start in the New Testament. It begins from the beginning with those words, hear, obey, and do. Hasn't changed, has it? Hear and do. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, and, and in fact, so this this worthless plant that's plucked up, this will this is this is the message of the entire Bible. When Jesus comes to the New uh, New Testament and he's reaching out to these unresponsive Jews, it's the same message. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. If the axe is laying at the root of the tree, what do you know? You know two things. Say it quickly. Say whatever you know about this. Say it. It's getting chopped down. And what do you know about when this will happen? <laughs> the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Somebody say it. It's happening any time now. And so that's, that's, that's really the same idea here. The final development in, in chapter 11 is that uh, Jeremiah is in danger, or at least so it would seem. And here's, here's how this works out. And this will sound somewhat familiar. You ready? Okay. He speaks his message to his hometown, his own people, the people and the priests in Anathoth. Okay. And it had, um, well, a sort of familiar uh, response. His message here was equally uh, popular as Jesus' message was in his hometown, Nazareth. What did the people plot to do when 
Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah in his hometown and, and spoke God's words to them. There's a plot. Yeah. Stoned. Was it thrown off a cliff at that time? Or stoned? I think it's the cliff at that, on that occasion. Um, and he's able to pass through their midst. But I, I could that have that wrong. So we'll check it in Luke chapter 4. We'll read that not now, but later. <laughs> um, but this is, this is just the familiar thing that the prophets face. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And there are threats against the one who would speak truth. And uh, I don't know that we should expect anything different among our own people when we attempt to speak the truth, um, but it's hard to hear. But it's, the fact of the matter is that, what is it? Okay, all right. So it's the, being thrown in, in any case, um, it's the rejection of the message. So whatever, that ta- whatever shape that took. At all times, darkness hates light. Uh, lies hate the truth. And so what is true is going to um, be met with rejection. Yeah. I think another thing you see here, though, is the sincerity of Jeremiah and his message, right? Jeremiah is preaching this message because he thinks it should be obvious, right? It should be obvious to the people what's going on. And mm-hmm. his call shouldn't be that hard to see or to do. Yeah. And so he's kind of surprised when, wait, they have plots against me? <laughs> you know, he's kind of shocked by that. Right. It's like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. This is, I'm not, this is not what I would really want to expect. And surely, of all people, they would be sympathetic to what I have to say. And, and yeah, they, they know me. They're, from, they're my hometown. They're my people. They know my brothers and my, just like Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, Jeremiah does not need to fear. A couple times in our readings tonight... We're going to see the assurance that God continues, well, it continues to assure him. In chapter 1, verse 19, do you remember when he was called, what God told him? Do not what? Do not fear. Do not fear. They will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. And so... He, here, they plot to destroy him. God promises to destroy them. And that's what you find at the end of chapter 11. For all of us, the encouragement of, of Peter is, this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, as speaking for God and, very, and, and, and serving him, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And so I think God is saying essentially the same thing to Jeremiah. Anything else on chapter 11? We've got to go on, but here's your chance. Okay. Chapter 12. What I find here is some of the uprooting and, and, and planting that uh, we have uh, pointed out. And that'll be toward the end of the chapter. But before that, there's God's affection, one-time affection, and then this upcoming rejection. What happens at the beginning of chapter 12 is that Jeremiah wrestles with the observation that wicked people seem to be prospering. And this is natural for God's people to do. In fact, before Jeremiah, Asaph would do this. If you read Psalm 73, he's thinking, I just can't 
understand how it seems that they're at ease and, and their lives are good. And I didn't understand it until I considered their end, right? And so just like Asaph before him and just like Habakkuk after him, Habakkuk will look around and say, God, can you not see what's happening among these people? They're all very, very wicked. And Jeremiah wrestles with this. Listen to um, here in verse 1 and 2. Why is the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You've planted them. They've taken root. It's almost like they're, they're doing fine. They grow. They've even produced fruit that's not good fruit, but they're, they're living in the land. They're experiencing some measure of God's blessings. But um, they, uh, they're wicked, and it seems as though they're prospering. So they continue to enjoy some measure of God's blessings. And based on that, what would be the motivation after all for them to correct their ways, to amend their ways as Jeremiah was trying to tell them at the temple? What is the motivation if their lives are going along smoothly and well? And so often do we see it when a person's life is going along smoothly and well, it's easy to drift, easy to drift away slowly. But sometimes God has to use other means to draw them back. But this is more evidence of what we discussed last week. Somebody put it to me this way. And some of this I'm quoting from him because, well, if I had said it that way, we would have used fewer words and said it better. <laughs> but it, he, somebody said that it was easy to see why Judah would uh, view this kind of lack of any kind of current punishment from God as God's favor and approval um, and feel justified in continuing in their sinful ways. Okay, that's a paraphrase, but this is a quote, and this, is a, this observation is a lesson for us. It's so hard for us to separate our physical circumstances from our spiritual health. And I think it's very easy to assume that because God is currently blessing us, that we are living righteously. Is that conclusion founded? Not always the case, right? Um, and so I appreciated uh, that was when that was shared with me. A very uh, striking and very memorable statement about the hearts of the people. And again, something that would seem very familiar in verse 2, which we, did, we didn't read the end of verse 2, so now we do. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. Did anyone else named Jesus preach a similar message? And if so, how did that go? And what did he say? Hmm? Yes, right. This people worships me with, honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain are they worshiping me. Yes, uh, very much so. And that, after all, is a quote of Isaiah. And so, um, speaking of these, these same ones. Come down to verse uh, 7. Because this is where we see the affection and the rejection. It's a threefold description of God's affection for his people. And a threefold description of him turning away. And so, in... Uh, in verse 7, I have forsaken my house, I have abandoned my inheritance, and I've given the beloved of my soul into the hand of their enemies. I think God is trying to show something about his, the, the desire he has to have affection and to view his people 
with favor and, and, and love. And he describes them in, th- in these three ways, as his house, as his inheritance, and as his beloved. And we've seen, we just saw the, be- the beloved in chapter 11. But if the beloved is acting faithlessly, does she have any right to come home to him? Well, um, but these things, I think, point to the fact that if, he, if he's calling them a house, I think the idea is that he desires them to be his family um, and have a relationship with them. If he calls them his inheritance, it shows how much he values them, right? And the, if he calls them his beloved, it shows a, a tender affection for them, right? And yet he's having to turn away against his will and against what he would want to do. And the rejection is described in three ways. He's going to forsake them, he's going to abandon them, and he's going to give them away, send them away. His disposition toward them, where he would, he, he would desire to show them love, loving kindness, his disposition is changed temporarily, I'm going to say, to anger and even hate. So in verse 8, my, my, my uh, inheritance has become like a lion that's roared against me. It's like you, you, you uh, get a pet dog and the dog bites your leg off. It's like, this, this, these, these, these things shouldn't happen. So his response is, therefore, I have come to hate her. What changed so that God's disposition has changed toward his people? You tell me. I'm not telling you. (laughs) Yeah, disobedience. And you said what about their hearts? Yeah, oh, entirely lost their hearts, right? Yeah, their hearts are far, far from him. They don't, they're, they're not toward him anymore. They changed. They were unfaithful. And why do I say this is a temporary anger? Well, he will say in verse 15, I will again have compassion. And it will come about that after I have uprooted them, I will again have compassion. I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance, to his own land. This recalls uh, Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9. Now listen for some familiar words here, by the way. The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not, listen, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. So he's pointing ahead to a time where his anger can be appeased in what he accomplishes in a punishment um, and a correction, right? And um, he will turn from his anger and show them favor again. Again, some things that start pointing to the Messiah when he will show compassion on all the nations. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let's see that as we come down to uh, verses 14 through the end. The final discussion of what we call chapter 12 is very interesting because it's this uprooting that we've seen before. But part of this uprooting is because God needs to replant. You might even say transplant what he's uprooted. So this is very interesting because for the most part, the uprooting is this plant is worthless and I really don't have any more use for it. And so uh, what we see in verse 14, there's an uprooting of the wicked nations that are going to punish Judah. And this is a, an uprooting of uh, destruction. They're going to be basically cut down. But in verse 15, 
while they're being uprooted, Judah is being uprooted from their captivity. So God actually planted them and actually blessed them greatly in in Babylon, in their captivity. Build houses, pray for the welfare of those people. And they were planted there, but God uprooted them. Are they going to be thrown away as well with the nations? No, his purpose is to bring them back to the land, transplant, replant. Um, And we'll return to this uh, very powerfully in chapter 24. So uh, maybe uh, three or four or five or six weeks from now or whenever we get there. Um, But then what's really, really surprising uh, and would be if, especially to God's people, is what we find in verse 16, that people from any nation can be planted among God's people. And this is surprising because of the firm lines that God had drawn about association with the nations. How can they be part of this? And so in verse 16, then it will come about that this is speaking of the other nations, that if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, saying, as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be built up in the midst of my people, even foreigners could have part in this. That's a beautiful uh, thing. And uh, by the way, this nearly parallels the figure of Romans 11. Somebody tell us what the figure of Romans 11 is. Yeah, grafted in. So there are branches that are worthless, and this describes some of the Jews that wouldn't respond. They're broken off. But what, what takes their place? Anyone who's obedient from any, any nation. Um, very neat. Um, And lastly, at the end of this, the eternal principle that any nation that wholesale rejects God by refusing to listen, they are uprooted and destroyed. And again, an eternal principle. Verse 17, but if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it. So really, I I find that very, very interesting. So the uprooting can uh, be a means to to replanting. but it's also, uh, as we've plainly seen, <clears throat> plainly seen a means to destruction. Okay, anything else about chapter 12? We're not going fast enough. Yes, uh, can you get Carrie? <clears throat> I guess it reminds me of the proverb uh, that, you know, sin is a reproach to any people. And so that's what we see. Again, to your point, we see these principles being laid out continually throughout Jeremiah. And here is the principle that God rules in the affairs of men. And if there's a nation that is evil, he has the power and will mm-hmm. uproot that nation and destroy it and bring you know, some, some means to destroy that nation. Mm-hmm. Very good. In chapter 13... Uh, God trades in the figure of a husband who has an unfaithful wife for a different figure, a linen waistband. Now, I don't know that we have a very good analog for this in modern times, uh, kind of a beautiful piece of garment that's decorative and beautiful, and uh, maybe, maybe the la- some ladies, you might have a really nice scarf <laughs> that, you, that you wear occasionally or something of this nature. Maybe, probably at one time, men would have one or two really nice silk ties that are only worn on special occasions. Maybe something like this is what God is trying to picture for Jeremiah. So he begins by telling him, go buy a waistband. Um, And then he tells him to bury it under a rock. Now, this is uh, obviously very strange. (laughs) God's intending to paint a picture and use this to teach a lesson. 
And Jeremiah does all this. God sends him back to retrieve it after many days, and predictably, what happens to it? What's, what, what, what does he find? It's worthless. What, yeah, it's, it's been ruined here. It's planted, by the way, uh, under a rock, or not planted, but buried under a rock by the Euphrates River. This is a veiled reference, or maybe not veiled, um, depending on um, how clever you are, to uh, Babylon, it, the, this nation that's coming to power, going to be a world power, and God's going to use to destroy his people. So, but Jeremiah finds probably exactly what he expected to find. It was like, just like I expected, I knew this would happen. What was the point of all that? So it's a, a perfect picture to, to teach a lesson. So listen to verse, uh, this will be verse uh, 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, just like this, just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, and have gone after other gods to serve them and bow down to them, let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. What God wanted was something that would be a glory to him. It was beautiful. It was valuable. This is what he desired. And most of all, listen to, uh, so this is going to be verse 11. What he really wanted was just like this waistband. If you tie a tie on, it's not coming off without some serious effort. He wanted them to cling. He uses the word cling or hold fast to him. For as a waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, that they might be for me, again, a people, for renown, for praise, for glory. But they did, uh, did not listen. Uh, I want to read uh, just quickly two verses from Jeremiah chapter 30. This is in the context where he says, listen, I've set before you the life and death, the blessing and the curse. I hear some of you turning. So this is verses 19 and 20. Of Jeremiah 30. And he encourages them. He, he, he just bluntly says, so choose life. Why? And he, other times he's saying, why would you die? Why would you choose to die? So choose life, he says, that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God. Listen, listen to see if you can hear something about clinging to the Lord in these words, okay? That you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, so that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. He desired them to hold fast to him. What could, what could, what could be preventing them? Uh, answer this if you like. What could be preventing them from listening and heeding? It's, it's pointed out, especially from verses 8 down through verse uh, 15. Oh, yeah. So, uh, first, I guess, verse 15. Listen and give heed. Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Hebrews uh, 12 says, do not refuse him who is speaking. This will say, listen and do not be haughty um, when he speaks. Verse 13, we'll call it great pride. And, and yes, this is what caused them to refuse to listen and just walk in their own uh, stubborn ways. Verse 23 describes being firmly entrenched in sin. But look at the figure he uses when he asks, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Have you ever uh, been able to change the complexion of your skin? Not without a lot of effort, being outside, you know, all day, uh, eight hours a day. 
And an Ethiopian, no, I, I don't suppose he can. Or the leopard change his spots. <laughs> These are things that can't happen. And the point is, if that could happen, then, my eyes can't find it, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So what's the idea? It, the idea is they've gone on in this so long that it's basically impossible for them to change at this point. I think some familiar passage in the New Testament, at least one, maybe more than one, speaks to this. What about it? <clears throat> think of Hebrews 6. If they've gone this way, it's impossible to get them to return. Well, that's all we'll say about chapter 13, unless you want to add to something that we have missed. Yeah, Mitch. Just quickly, uh, the idea of the waistband, I think, is a perfect idea because it's destroyed not because of anything mm. it did itself, but just because the care of the master is withdrawn. Okay, yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so if, if it's not being, um, it, God, God will say, and this will be, I think, chapter 15 that we'll read, he's going to withdraw his peace. And so if his goodness goes away, what, what can they expect? Yeah, it's ruin, devastation, all that. So, yeah, very good. Chapter 14, I'm just going to summarize it this way. Don't doubt the drought, he will say. It begins with a talk of severe drought, and he says, this is a result of your idolatry. And you say, I don't see the connection. Well, here's the connection. So these are the words, by the way, of Jeremiah, or, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11. So this is verses 16 and 17. I'm not turning there because I took it down so we can go quickly. Beware that your hearts are not deceived. And that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Uh, I think later in Deuteronomy, he'll say he's going to turn your rain into like uh, clouds of dust or something. Quite a picture. But there's, there's the connection between serving other gods and God saying, I'm going to try some things to get your attention. And one of those is going to be, uh, I'm going to dry, up the, dry the clouds up. They're not going to give their rain. And at times the prophets would have to pray for this or pray for that to be reversed. Um, Amos talks about these people. There's a, they hear a little rain over at one place and they're staggering from one city to the other. And it's just a pitiful, pitiful state. And this is just coming to pass like God had spoken. <clears throat> In verse 13, Jeremiah is frustrated that his message is not getting through. After all, are they going to listen to the one person speaking truth when this whole multitude is telling them pleasant words to the contrary? Is, is he going to make any progress with them? It, it's, it's unlikely, right? Listen to verse 13. Jeremiah says, but, ah, oh, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword. And when he says the sword, nor, you will, uh, and you, nor will you have famine, this is a direct contradiction of what God is saying through Jeremiah. The sword he's talking about is the sword that Jeremiah is speaking about. What sword? That one. Um, so it's contradicting his message. And this is all the prophets of the land 
have, have this same message. And so what gives here? And, and who will the multitude listen to? You will not see sword nor famine. You will not surely die, right? Um, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Now, that's a very pleasant message. I, I'm perfectly content to hear that. It's much harder to hear, amend your ways, fix yourselves, or I'm going to throw you away um, like yesterday's whatever. Um, so listen to verses, uh, verse 14. What, what, what does God have to say about what the prophets have to say? The Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood. In my name, I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They're prophesying, uh, these words are amazing. They're prophesying to you false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. And furthermore, they keep saying, according to verses 15 and 16, they keep saying, there shall be no sword or famine in this land. And what I'm calling this a proportional, what is it? Proportional punishment. They're saying, no sword, no famine. What are they going to suffer? How are they going to die? By the sword and by famine, right? This is how they shall meet their end. The people also, so the ones who've been led astray, yeah, the rulers are, bear a tremendous responsibility for telling, speaking truly, for handling God's word properly, but the people bear a responsibility for the message they listen to as well. And if we have ears that only want to be tickled, we'll bear the responsibility for what we've chosen there too. The people also, verse 16, to whom uh, they're prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And there's no one to bury them. There's no one left. Neither them nor their wives nor their sons nor their daughters. I shall pour out their own wickedness on them. And so, uh, yeah, proportional uh, punishment. There is um, probably much more we could say about chapter 14, but uh, you'll have your chance now. Otherwise, we're going to chapter 15. Yeah, go. Is it not? I mean, I would think it's possible the prophets are saying this as a twisting of what was told to Jeremiah. Oh, yeah. Josiah, Josiah, that he would be spared, but the people mm. would not. How about that? I'll give that some thought. Chapter 15, the, the key idea here is that God is tired of relenting. How much longer can he go on when he's um, witnessing all of this? Three times already, God has told Jeremiah, we haven't called attention to this, and that's probably a mistake, but it's just where we are. Three times God has told Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. Now, what does it say about the state of the people if, if, the, it, it just, if the most compassionate being is turning away and, and rejecting them? Do, he's telling, he's, so he's told Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. He goes on to say in chapter 15, even if Moses or Samuel, Moses, the great inter, intercessor, the one who kept God, as it were, from completely wiping out his people, even they couldn't convince me to spare these people. Now that really says um, a lot about their situation. My heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Go where? Well, so listen to verse 2. Um, I don't think they will, uh, well, 
I don't think they will favor this idea. It shall be that when they say to you, where shall we go? This is not, uh, uh, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of life. And it's like, it's like what, what do you mean you're sending us away, God? You're, you say you're supposed to be near to your people. No, I'm sending you away. Thus says the Lord, those destined for death to death, for the sword to sword, for famine to famine. Uh, I thought we weren't going to see sword and famine. No, you will. And those destined for captivity to captivity. Uh, he's appointed four kinds of doom. For them, he says. This reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where God gave them over. They're, they're just really beyond saving, and it's been given over to their own ways and, and, and other things. And so, and we read from chapter 14, verse 16, I'm pouring out their own wickedness upon them. They're beyond hope of help. And that's what you see in verse 5. Who will have pity on you or care about you? Beyond hope of help and they're beyond healing. This is uh, mirrored by what is said in Second Chronicles 36. At the end of that, this nation's coming to a, a grinding halt. They continue, why? They continually mocked the messengers of God. They're not, they have no ears for this message. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against that people until there was no remedy. And the same thing here. Verse 6, you have forsaken me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards. So I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am tired of relenting. Now, this unwelcome message uh, continues to invite enemies. And what you see in verse 15, Jeremiah says, please, please take note. Take note of their threats. Uh, is, that Jer is that Nehemiah? <laughs> um, and it's the, it's the same idea here. Thou knowest, O Lord, remember me. Sorry, you who know. Thou who knowest, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. This is unjust. I'm, 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 I'm speaking to them in their own best interest. And they're, they're laying plots for me. They want to destroy me. And he prays for God's protection and even... Uh, well, vengeance on those who are persecuting him. Do not, in view of thy patience, take me away. Know that it's for your sake I endure reproach. Matthew chapter 5, right? In the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men persecute you. When they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Because of, on, on my account, Jeremiah says, it's on your account that I'm suffering this. And he's not really bitter with God. He's trusting in God to protect him. Um, they will do this. For so they, Matthew says, they're going to do this to you. <laughs> and it's, they did the same thing to the prophets who came before you. We're reading that right here. We're reading it. Jeremiah uh, chapter 15, verse 15. <laughs> verse 21 reiterates God's assurance. And it's the same thing from before. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. I will never, what? I will never desert you. I'll never leave you, right? I will never forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I think that's what um, we're seeing here. Shall we attempt one minute through chapter 16? Let's start it, and we'll see what happens after that. The doors are still closed up, and so I guess we have plenty of time. 
Now, uh, before we get to chapter 16, according to Ecclesiastes, if Alan can be trusted, uh, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And you think, surely it's one of these either or. Either it's the time to mourn or it's the time to laugh. It's the time to weep or laugh or, or time to mourn or it's the time to dance. It's got to be either or. Very strange here in Jeremiah 16, God's revealing it's neither. Because God will tell him, I need to do this. There's just a couple notes here. God is giving Jeremiah specifically several instructions. First, he tells him at the beginning, don't take a, a wife and you can't have sons or daughters in this place. You know what's coming to these people. You don't want a wife to go through all of these things. You don't want to lose your children to all of these things. But after that, more importantly, and to our purpose, verse 5, he says, and by the way, uh, I, I'm going to ask you why. If, if he's being told not to mourn, Oh boy, you don't have much time. And also, not to feast, not to rejoice. Well, here's, here's your homework then. He says in verse 5, Do not enter a house of mourning or go to lament or console them. Why not? Why is he being given this instruction? And then in verse 8, on the other hand, it's like, well, if I can't mourn, should I be able to have um, just kind of live life and, 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 and be merry? Well, no. In verse 8, moreover, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. So we don't have time to discuss that now. So bring it back next week and uh, maybe we can answer why Jeremiah got these instructions. Thank you very, very much.